Hi, everyone, and welcome back to yet another cracking edition of The Matt Brown Show. This is the Secrets of Fail series where we're talking to business leaders, entrepreneurs, and CEOs all about uh, epic business blunders. And with us in the hot seat today is none other than Matt. Yes, another one, but Matt Desh. He is the CEO of a company called Iridium. Matt, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Matt. Perfect. Well, look, let's get into the elevator pitch. What are you guys up to over there at Iridium? Well, people might have heard our name before. We were founded 30 years ago by Motorola in the late 80s, early 90s to be sort of a cell phone company for the world in the early days of cell phones. Um, uh, didn't work out quite the way they thought, but they spent five or six billion dollars um, uh, building the network. Um, I know we're going to talk about failure here. We were sort of the OG of, of business failures, if you will, because, um, uh, you know, the company was the largest bankruptcy at that point in history, I think, for, as I understand it, in 1999, I think it was, until Enron and WorldCom failed later that year and sort of uh, superseded it. So it was certainly founded as an incredible innovation. But, you know, since that time, we have rescued it uh, is the largest most valuable public company really in the satellite space uh, right now and uh, supporting over 2 million subscribers around the world you know the original low earth orbiting satellite system that makes connections to people places thing I mean people things um, assets that sort of thing anywhere on the planet and uh, but it hasn't been an easy road and I'm sure that's probably what you want to talk about Yes, let's talk about that right now. So let's get into it. So you, you alluded to it, Matt, just now, but uh, what actually went down there? What, what is your epic story of failure for our audience around the world today? Well, um, in fact, it's being taught as a business case in some business schools about things like, you know, of, of what to not do. Um, you know, there's, it was an incredible technical idea in the late 80s, early 90s when cell, cell phones were in their infancy. Um, I don't know if you remember your first cell phone, but I remember when I first got in, the, I, my career before here was in the cell phone industry in the early days. And there was only one million cell phones in the U.S. when I started in 19, uh, I guess it was eight, uh, uh, in, the, in the mid, well, it was in the late 80s, I guess it was, uh, early 90s. But um, uh, And Iridium was kind of conceived as something to, uh, extend the network to the rest of the world. And it's funny, after 35 years or 40 years now of cell phones, they still only cover about 10% of the Earth's surface. And so if you want to talk anywhere else, having a satellite over overhead that could connect uh, your phone or your device um, uh, is the way to do it. And so it was conceived, uh, no one had ever, there was no commercial systems in low Earth orbit. There were only spy satellites in low Earth orbit. All satellites were way far away over the equator in something called a geosynchronous uh, equatorial orbit. And so they raised tons and tons of money, you know, billions of dollars, got Spectrum, um, created almost a space race because many other companies also went after it and then launched a whole bunch of satellites in 1997 and 1998, uh, went public on the New York Stock Exchange, rocketed up the line, and then went bankrupt a year later. So kind of a toxic environment at that point, and everybody was sure that this idea was a, was a, was a failure. It was, uh, it was all because it was too big an idea, um, 
there was groupthink, obviously, that continued on. At some point, you just start, you have to keep it going because all these analysts must be wrong because look at all the people who are involved in this and what what incredible uh, uh, capability this would provide the world that didn't exist at the time. The real problem was that it took seven, eight, ten years to build the system, to finance it, to build it. That's the problem with a capital-intensive built uh, service like a satellite system. And by the time they launched it, the underlying cellular world had progressed dramatically. You know, we had we had multiple operators in every country. We had little flip phones. You know, StarTex. You probably remember these things. And so, coming out with a big satellite phone to solve this problem that was thousands of dollars at the time uh, and cost a dollar a minute wasn't what people wanted. And so, you know, it wasn't too surprising afterwards that perhaps this wasn't going to succeed. The company was purchased out of bankruptcy. Um, There's actually been a book written about it called Eccentric Orbits. Um, uh, It was purchased for something like $25 million, you know, after $6 billion was spent. Um, Lots of facilities. The network was up in space and uh, very shortly after started to create a profit, went cash flow positive pretty quickly, started growing very rapidly. And what people didn't appreciate is while the network wasn't perfect for making voice calls like cell phone calls, it was great for making data connections to assets and things on the move and all kinds of other applications that we've now invented on top of it. Uh, I joined the company in 2006, so five or six years after that. Um, certainly was involved and knew the people involved in it before that time. So I've been here 17 years. In that time, we've launched a brand new network, lots of new services, and the company has grown really like a weed to the point it's um, you know almost an $800 million company. It's worth seven, eight billion dollars in market cap. It's um, it's a fast-growing company that's paying back shareholders, et cetera. So it's become a success, but I often say it's like a 30-year overnight success story. You know, <laughs> it, uh, It's all of a sudden everybody's saying, where do these guys come from? How could it be this successful? But it was many years of, of really uh, work to get here. I love that story. I love that story. Um, so when you think about that whole uh, story, uh, Matt, what do you think are some key lessons? I mean, obviously you you guys were betting on the future. We all, I suppose it's Moore's law, right? It's like technology doubles every, was it every year or something like that? And that whole thing was then proven just true in many cases. Um, and so you were betting on the future, didn't work out, happens all the time. Um, <clears throat> but when you think about that, what are some key takeaways for our audience that, you know, when you think about that whole experience that you now as maybe as a team take forward into the business today? Well, you know, um, there's this concept these days of too big to fail, but sometimes things are big and should fail. You know, um, in this, this case, I think people just kept investing it because they put so much money and effort and time into it. At that point, you had to keep going instead of instead of reviewing the business plan and saying, wait a minute, the original business plan plan doesn't make sense. We really need to pivot and do something else. So could we have avoided failure? Well, very few companies that spend as much money, on such a capital intensive thing are easily able to do that, at least not public ones. You know, the company shouldn't have gone public so fast. It shouldn't have used debt. Debt is very um, impatient. It likes to be paid back. Equity is what most startups use because um, it's, it's a bet and they have to be patient and 
Um, so, you know, I think people got greedy along the way. The companies that were involved in it made sure they paid themselves, but didn't, uh, didn't fund for the, you know, the future and investors and that sort of thing. So all that, how to avoid, avoid the first round is, is one way, uh, one set of lessons. But the other one was just the next 10 to 15 years were challenging as you, as we built up a company, you got to do things that customers really want. You have to worry about the user experience. You have to, you have to focus like a laser on what you're better at. I mean, one of the reasons that attracted me to Iridium after having been in the terrestrial wireless world is everything in, everything in telecommunications has commoditized. You know, if you think about it, beyond an iPhone and an Android or Samsung phone, the innovation and the underlying threshold network, maybe a lot of your viewers don't know it, have really become standardized, wrote the people who build the cell towers and systems, they compete with each other. And the one that could compete better than anyone else was, was Chinese, um, Huawei. And of course, Huawei has been in the news lately because they had been heavily subsidized. They went out and just became very, very large, but it was very difficult to innovate around that anymore because everything was uh, standardized. Uh, I wanted to come to Iridium because six years after we came out of bankruptcy, we were innovating like crazy. We were all kinds of new ideas that we could just create a service that was better, that saved more lives, that was that could be put on a ship or on an airplane or on a, um, a piece of heavy equipment to track it around the world, and it could be done better than anyone else, um, we would succeed. And so I'd say the, the lesson there was focus on your lane, make sure you're, you can defend your lane better than anyone else. You have a better product, you have a better service, and, and you're faster and better than anyone else at doing it. And then just keep at it. Don't, don't go where everyone else is going, the bigger market. I mean, one of the attractions for in the satellite industry is go after big broadband dishes. Mm -hmm. That's what... Um, uh, a company, Starlink, a lot of people know SpaceX and Starlink are building a very innovative uh, dish. Now, they're in low Earth orbit, too, but they, we don't compete with Starlink. They focus on big dishes doing big pipes, and we focus on little battery-powered devices that can fit in your pocket or mm. on, your, you know, on your hand or something that has a very small antenna that can be powered for days or months without a, without a power cord. And there's been a lot of, well, don't you want to do broadband pipes like those guys. And if we did, we would be in the biggest competitive environment, not mm -hmm. just against Starlink, but against Amazon and against many other companies. And so we've avoided that. We've, we've focused on it. Everybody said, but what you're doing is kind of a niche. It's small. It's not as big. And we said, yeah, but we're the best at it. And nobody can do it as well as we do. And that's what's made us successful. Mm. It's, it's amazing to think about uh, that sort of a story. It's, it's incredible because I, I'm a great believer in niching, and I think when you are a visionary CEO and you're, you know, and you have a leadership team with 30 vice presidents, and they're all trying to, you know, envision the future, it's very easy to because you have shareholders to want to diversify into other sectors, other industries, other products, other things. And when when you're already in your lane, you're the best at it. Do you know what I'm saying? Where you having there's a return on capital for investors and shareholders and things like this. Um, and oftentimes when we try and, you know, take on too much, we actually start to, st I call it starving on indigestion because <laughs> you just, nothing's actually going down right. I think, uh, you know, 
the one word that often puts the hair on the back of my neck when, when a business person uses it is uh, the TAM, mm. total addressable market. And every time I see a business pitch of somebody who says, look at the size of this TAM, it's so big. All we need to do is get a 1% or whatever yeah, and yeah. look how much money we'll make. That's happening right now in the, um, our technology is going into smartphones, um, uh, the Android ecosystem with our partnership in Qualcomm. And there's so many people who are now going after that to see if satellites can't connect this outside of cell phone coverage for SOS and emergency messaging. The iPhone's doing that with a, a different competitor. Um, but everybody just says, well, this is the biggest market ever because, look, there's 7 billion phones. And if you're just in a tiny bit of it, not, I start going, whoa, whoa, whoa. What is the user experience going to be like? What are people, what's it going to cost? Where is it? And nobody's asking those questions across this right now. They're saying, but if you could do it, wouldn't it be fantastic? Yes. But let's ask all the questions. How far will, will it operate everywhere in the world? Will, you know, is the cell phone company going to pay for it? Is the end user going to pay for it? Is it something? How are you going to get it? Is it going to come in your phone so it's easy in an app, or is it going to be something you have to buy from your phone store? All those are really, really important questions, and it's just a really important that you, you really do focus on what are you really good at, what is your service, and how will it be perceived, and how well will it, uh, how will it, re will it really operate. Mm. So, Matt, if you could get into the Matt Brown Show time machine and kind of go back to you know when all the wheels were coming off at that time, and the bets on the future wasn't coming right in the way that it was planned. What advice would you give that leadership team if you had the privilege of, and obviously with the benefit of hindsight, if you could go back in time, what advice would you give them? Well, you know, the one I gave them, I was actually the president of a, of a wireless company, a competitive wireless company. And everybody asked me what I thought of, of Iridium at the time. And I said, it's, it's, the business case doesn't make sense to me. The idea is a, a bold one. It's innovative, but you know, somebody is, um, you know, there's a group thing going on. Be careful. You got to keep reevaluating your assumptions. Are they still accurate? You know, um, uh, is, is that true? I, I would want to jump back even during my reign here in the last 17 years, it wasn't easy to raise $3 billion when we didn't have that um, and build a system. When we pick SpaceX to, as a, for their launcher. SpaceX hadn't even gotten a rocket up there. And they thought, how bold was that that you picked, you know, a, a launcher that wasn't, you must have known that they would succeed. No, I just knew I couldn't afford the next, <laughs> they, the, uh, the ones that were out there uh, and they had to succeed. And so I would say my, my main uh, advice usually is, you know, one foot in front of the other, solve the business problems one, one and another, Keep focusing on what you're really trying to accomplish. Um, you know, stay focused and in your lane, but keep at it. You know, it's just, um, it's, you have to believe in the outcome. You have to see that strategically what you're doing will get you there. And then you just have to keep executing step by step. Um, it really helps to be involved in a high growth business. Low growth businesses are hard to evolve. In our case, if you're growing 10 to 20% a year, it's amazing you can solve the problems of financing and execution and stuff. And so if you're if what you're doing is very important, if it's needed, if it uh, if customers like it, you can solve a lot of your other business problems along the way, you know. Mm -hmm. 
So, uh, Matt, uh, very quickly, um, what is your advice to CEOs uh, watching us right now or listening to us wherever they are in the world about the importance of failing or failure in becoming successful in business? Yeah, it's not, it's not just um, failing in business, but it's failing at anything. Um, you know, I, I started a leadership group at my alma mater, um, you know, for students. And I mean, the, the, the realization was that when you're doing really well, you're, you assume nothing is wrong, uh, that there's nothing you could be doing wrong and you're not learning anything and nothing's happening. So I celebrate failure, you know, I mean, I'm mean, technically, I stumbled in my career twice, you know, but I talk about it because to me, that was when I was really growing. That's when I was really evaluating um, what happened, what could I have done differently, um, what can I learn from that experience. I wasn't political enough at one. You know, I wasn't managing in a big company. I realized I don't want to be in a big company anymore. <laughs> I don't want to. I could either get good at that and survive those or I could get away from those and create an environment where it wasn't. I learned, you know, I mean, others might be better at doing that and they should go off and do that. Um, uh, I realized another one, I just didn't want to be that much associated with private equity, you know, uh, and um, it, it, it didn't meet my standards for accomplishing something big and making an impact in the world. It was a financial transaction and that wasn't what motivated me. I grew, I figured out what was, what I really needed to, to be successful as well. So um, you know, I think you just got to be really honest about with yourself, uh, and, uh, and, and celebrate when the failures occur and, or, you know, and a lot of things are never so clear as failures. They're just not successes. And that's when you got to be brutally honest with yourself and say, what I'm better at having been through this non-success, you know, and, uh, but what did I really learn? And am I applying it to the next, the next thing I'm doing here? Um, a lot of us don't want to ever be, um, ever believe that we failed or that we're not always successful. And I don't think we're as, um, as honest with ourselves about really the environment that we're truly in. Mm -hmm. Couldn't agree with you more. So, uh, Matt, what about books, tools, and resources that you recommend to other CEOs today? Um, I think the most important thing, I mean, I mean, there, I'm sure there's a billion books on this, but I honestly uh, don't relate as much to that. To me, it's about creating the environment around you where they're calling bull on what's really going on. Um, in my personal situation, when I was in the telecom world, I was in an executive team. By the way, the company that I was associated with, I left at the height of the dot-com boom. Mm. I was forced out at the height of the dot-com boom. Um, they went on two or three years later to start the process and eventually went from the most valuable tech company in the world to a bankrupt company. And a lot of it was because they believed uh, – they were happened to be in an environment where all the boats were rising and they believed it was all due to their incredible, you know, managerial talent. When in fact they should have been a lot more humble about the environment they were in and a lot more circumspect about what was causing and whether they were really causing their success or they were just, um, you know, rising with it all. I think, you know, at the time I even remember being in a meeting going, you know, I know that our stock is doubled and tripled, but 
but I don't think we're as good a company as one of the companies that's failing. We're not executing as well as they did. And I remember everyone looked at me and was like, you're crazy. We're, we're on top of the world. We're masters of the universe. And then you realized culturally, I'm not aligned with this group anymore because um, if you're not always a little humble about the environment you're in, even when you're uh, successful, you're not listening and you're not, you're not getting the best of the people around you and their strategic insights and what they're hearing. So you got to be really open to that. You got to create an environment where people go, you know, the emperor has no clothes right now. The strategy is off. Um, you got to look for those people that are smart and capable and, um, and are willing to kind of buck um, group think and, um, and, and encourage, you know, everyone to listen to them and be open-minded about that and create an open environment with the organization so that every person feels comfortable dealing with you as a CEO. Mm. I have one-on-ones with people all across the organization, but I spend an hour with them and I talk to them and I start with where they grew up and their families and all that stuff. Not I'm interested in those things because I like people, but mostly because I really want to break down any kind of barriers between them. I want them not during that call, but so that they feel comfortable clicking on a team's chat line and saying, I got something I really want to talk to you about. And it seemed like you're open to this sort of thing, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and and then you're going to find out what's really going on. Absolutely. Well, look, Matt, uh, that does conclude your time in the hot seat. Thank you so much for being on the Secrets of Fail show. What an incredible story. Great to have you here. It's been a real privilege. And uh, and I want to say congratulations to you and the team for turning that ship around and and building such an incredible business. Um, And uh, with you at the home, you know, that's uh, all chops to you, man. It's all chops to you. I appreciate it. Anytime. All righty. Thanks, everybody else. We'll see you again soon. Cheers. 